You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. But if you would, uh, go ahead. Uh, I just invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning uh, back again to to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 19, uh, continuing on in this sermon series that we started. Uh, so go ahead, uh, turn in your Bibles there, uh, and let me just start off by praying for our time again. So, Father, thank you uh, just for this opportunity to come back week after week and continually just dive into your word. Um, every time we open up this book, it doesn't matter how many times we've read it before, There are new treasures to uncover. So I pray just for our hearts right now that we would be open and that we would be receptive to what you have to say to us today. I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us that are here in this room, myself included. Pray that we would just be ready to let your spirit work in our lives and uh, that we would be ready to just be molded back into your image. Just ask all of that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So when I was living uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, one day I was coming home from work. I was really uh, tired and exhausted. I'll just blame it on that. Uh, But I pulled up to a four-way stop. Uh, There was a couple blocks from my apartment, and I noticed that there was kind of a long line of cars that were near the intersection. Uh, I was really busy, but I didn't think anything of it because I was living in a city. Cities are always busy and full of traffic, so I just figured, you know, maybe school had just gotten out or everybody had just kind of gotten off of work at the same time. So I pull up to the intersection. Uh, The car to my right goes through it. So thinking that it's my turn, I start to pull out, uh, but not before a second car pulls right through the intersection, uh, right behind the first one. Uh, And I got a little frustrated. You know, it was my turn to go. Uh, This guy just cut me off, uh, but was also a pastor. Pastors aren't supposed to get angry. They're not supposed to say anything that they're going to regret. So I just kind of let it slide. And I start to pull out into the intersection again, only to see a second car uh, go through, or, or, or really a third car, like right right behind uh, that other one that had just went. And, and this car cut me off as well. And, and that was kind of the, the last straw in the moment. You know, if one car cuts you off, that's one thing. Uh, but when two cars do it right in a row, uh, that, that, was, that was too much. So I, I laid on my horn, uh, expressing my frustration that this second car uh, just went right through the, that intersection. Uh, but as I did so, I looked at the driver who was going through the intersection, and he was looking back at me with equal amounts of frustration. And he was kind of waving his hands in, in these wild gestures, looking at me like I was the monster, like I was the one doing something wrong. And it wasn't until that moment right there that I took the opportunity to see where that long line of cars was coming from. And just a couple of blocks down the road, there was a Catholic church, and all of those cars were pulling out of that church parking lot. And then suddenly it it dawned on me that many of those cars had their blinkers on, and I realized that I was trying to cut through a funeral procession. 
I just honked my horn at people who had just lost a loved one. So obviously I felt very embarrassed and I kind of just tucked my head down in shame and I had to sit there for several minutes as all the cars went by. Uh, and I finally realized that I didn't have any reason, I didn't have any justification to be frustrated because I was the one who was actually the problem. All right, now just put that story on the back burner for a second. Uh, let me tell you another one. Um, I overheard a conversation not that long ago uh, from a, a gentleman uh, who had been divorced several times. I was just in a coffee shop and he was, he was talking to, to some other people, but he was talking loud enough that everybody in the room could hear him. Uh, and he was expressing all of his frustrations about his first wife. Uh, and he was saying that, you know, she had done this and she had done that uh, until finally this guy just felt like he really had no other choice but to file for divorce. You know, all of the problems in the relationship uh, were from his wife, not from him. Uh, but then he started talking about his second marriage. And you know, the second marriage sounded oddly similar to the first. Again, the new wife did this and she had done that until, again, this guy just felt like, well, you know, he just had no other choice but to file for divorce. Once again, Miraculously, he didn't do anything wrong. The problem had all come from her. And then he started talking about his current relationship. And that's when I really started to notice kind of a pattern going on here. Kind of sounded like all of these women must have been, you know, sisters or cousins or something because he made them sound just alike. They were always the ones who were unreasonable. They were always the ones that started the fights, never him. And I was sitting there overhearing all of that. Um, everything in me just wanted to like shout to this guy saying, you know what? There's kind of a common denominator here in all of these failed marriages, and it's actually you. You know, maybe you actually had more to do with those divorces than you thought. You know, maybe you're not quite as innocent as you assumed. Maybe you're actually the problem. All right, now let me share with you one more thing, uh, and then I promise we'll dive into our text. Um, I want to share a quote with you. I'm pretty sure that I've said it before, uh, but it comes from the pastor Charles Spurgeon, uh, and he once said this, he said, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If anything, you should be happy that, that they didn't realize actually just how bad you really are. Now, those stories that I just shared with you and, and that quote really summarize this passage that we're going to explore, Nehemiah chapter 5. Because as humans, we really are often far worse than we think we are or others think we are. So often, we just assume that everyone else is always the problem when in reality, we need to look no further than ourselves. And that's really going to be the big idea of this passage, if you're taking notes, which is that the people of God are actually the greatest danger to the people of God. 
The people of God are actually the greatest danger to the people of God. So often, we are our own worst enemies. Um, Last week, if you were with us, uh, we were talking about several external threats that were facing Nehemiah and his band of builders. Guys like Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, they tried to rally together the armies of Samaria to stop God's people from trying to rebuild Jerusalem and its walls. And so the Jews had to carry around with them all sorts of construction tools. And as they did so, uh, they also had to be armed as well. So in one hand, they would have a a trowel for building. uh, But then in another hand, they would have a sword ready for battle. They had to try to continue to advance the kingdom of God while simultaneously uh, seeking to defend it from would-be invaders. Well, now in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to see a new threat. But this one is actually an internal threat. It's one that's internal uh, rather than external. This is a problem that walls won't solve. So let me go ahead and start reading our text for us. It's a longer passage. I'm not going to read it all at once. Uh, Rather, I'm just going to progressively read it as we work through the story. Uh, And as we go, I want us to look at this problem more in depth that the people of God are facing, uh, and then we'll look at the solution. Uh, But let me go ahead and start by reading verses one through five for us. Um, It says, now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and, our, and for our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So up until this point, the people of God have been afraid from outside enemies that may seek to come into their midst. But here we see the outcry from God's people is actually against God's people. There were other Jews that were seeking to exploit their own brothers and sisters for financial gain, all while still trying, all while they're trying to rebuild the the rubble of their cities. People are trying to exploit them while they're trying to rebuild this city. And there's, there's a couple of different crises that are going on simultaneously here that we read about. Uh, First, it's apparent in verse 3 that there's some kind of famine in this land. And it's obviously bad enough that the people are having to mortgage their own farms and their own houses just so they can purchase some grain to eat. All right, now when you got to take out a loan just to put some food on your table, you know you are in a bad situation. 
There's also another crisis that's kind of compounding the problem even more, uh, and it has to do with the Persians. Uh, One of the ways that the Persian Empire uh, would keep everybody subjugated and would keep them from rebelling is by laying down heavy tax burdens on all of the people. If you kept them in poverty because all of your money was going to the government, it would be very difficult for you to raise up an army to lead any kind of rebellion against them. So verse 4 says that there's this king's tax that God's people had to pay, and it was apparently also sizable enough uh, that the Jews had to take out even more loans just to pay their taxes. Right, loans on top of the mortgages that they were already paying just to get some grain to eat. So the Jews here are facing just a crushing financial reality. And as a result, we're told that they are having to sell their own sons into slavery. They're forcing their daughters into prostitution. But, but what should really catch your attention in the midst of all of this is that the ones who are loaning out the money and who are charging alarmingly high interest rates, it's the Jews themselves. It's the Jewish nobles and officials that are loaning out this money and taking advantage of and profiting from these high interest rates that God's people are never going to be able to afford to pay back. I just want to stop right there. I want to talk about a couple of lessons that we can learn from the people of God and this this problem that they are facing. And here's the first lesson to realize, which is that walls can't help against a wicked heart. Walls can't help against a wicked heart. As we saw last week, Nehemiah is about halfway through this building project. The walls are uh, halfway done And all the vulnerable spots where there are still breaches, he's got these construction worker soldiers posted there 24-7, and they've got bows and spears and swords. They are ready to fight the enemy at a moment's notice. But the problem is, is that those weapons aren't going to do any good for Nehemiah and his people against this new threat. Because they're not facing off against the outside world. Now they're facing off against the wickedness of their own hearts. And this is not something any wall could protect them from. And too many, or too many times, congregations uh, trick themselves into believing that, that as long as we are within the walls of this church, then we must be safe. You know, we, we like to retreat from the outside world and we like to make sure that all of our friends are Christian and the music that we listen to and the books that we read and the shows that we watch. We think that as long as it's all Christian, as, we, as long as we surround ourselves with nobody but Christians, then we must be safe. So we end up letting our guards down so long as we are around fellow sheep here inside our, our cozy little sheep pen. But we forget that even sheep can bite. Even sheep can kick. And they can be just as dangerous as any other animal. Uh, New Christians are especially vulnerable to this. They, They are often surprised 
when other members of the church ignore them or look down on them or even try to take advantage of them or even just neglect them when they are in need. New Christians expect that kind of behavior from the world, but they are surprised when they see it inside the church. But, but this really is one of Satan's most effective strategies when he can pit the church against itself. When he can get the sheep to bite and to kick one another, man, he has it made because all the enemy then has to do is sit back and watch. Satan can just sip on a glass of lemonade in a lawn chair, watching the church do his work for him. So, so that's lesson number one to learn, is that walls can't help against a wicked heart. Now, but there's another lesson here too, uh, which is that you can't win against the world by looking just like the world. You can't win against the world by looking just like the world. In the Old Testament, God said that the nation of Israel was to be set apart as holy, meaning they were to be dedicated and devoted to God. They were to look different than the other nations. They were to act differently. They were to live in such a way that their holiness would set them apart and that other nations might even be pointed towards God because of how differently they acted and, and behaved. Yet, that's not what the Jewish nobles are doing in Nehemiah 5. I already said that it was the Persian government that made a habit out of overburdening their subjects with this crushing poverty. Well, now the Jewish nobles are doing the exact same thing. All right, they're, they're forcing their own people into such poverty that it's causing them to sell their own children into slavery. So if you were an outsider looking in, the, the difference between the Jewish nobles and the Persian nobles has started to become a, a pretty fuzzy line. It's starting to, to become pretty hard to distinguish between the two, which is always a risk that we must be aware of as Christians. Right? The Bible teaches that we are to live in the world, but not of the world. Even though we are living in the world, we are, we are living on earth, the Bible makes it clear that we are citizens of heaven. Right? This world is not our home. Yet so often we live and we act as though it is. You'll hear those who claim to be a follower of Christ, but their language is just as vulgar as their neighbors. Their joking is crude. Their profanity is plentiful. And you'd be hard-pressed to find any real differences between the way that they live and the way that the secular world around them lives. You just watch, you know, certain Christian bankers or, or businessmen who are greedy, who like to cut corners, even if it means taking advantage of somebody else. And again, it can become difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish their business practices from someone who's not even a Christian. So, so you have to remember that you will never win against the world or, or win over the world by looking just like the world. Right? You can't be set apart as God's people and try to blend in with the world at the same time. That is an impossibility. There are Christians 
that want to talk just like the world and they want to live like it and dress like it. And then they wonder why the world is having more influence on them than the other way around. You'll never be able to win the world by looking just like the world. You have to behave and live in such a manner that it shows that you have been set apart and that you are living a holy, Christ-honoring life. So that's the problem that, that Nehemiah and his people were facing. And it comes from their own people, not from the outside world. So, so let's now just go ahead and, and spend the rest of our time trying to find a solution. All right, if the people of God are the greatest danger to the people of God, then, then how do you overcome that danger? Well, I want to break down what Nehemiah does into three steps, uh, which are steps that we need to take as well whenever there is disunity or opposition in the church. Step number one, you see in verse six, where it says, I, which is to say Nehemiah, was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. So step one then is just to let the significance of the problem sink in. Let the significance of the problem just go ahead and sink in. All right, that's what Nehemiah did. He heard the outcry of his people. And then because of that, we're told that he became very angry. And that's actually a good thing. So, so often we think about anger and we think that it always must be sinful, but it doesn't have to be. I, I've said this in other sermon series, but even Jesus got angry on a number of occasions. All right, Jesus wasn't afraid of flipping over tables, but he did so in a way that was not sinful. He kept his anger in check. He wasn't controlled by it. He didn't let his anger lead him into sin. Too often, though, we, we hear about problems uh, and, and we just forget about it before we ever let the, the weight of those problems sink in, before we ever let those problems move us uh, to take action. You know, you're reading a newspaper, there is a headline about a, a famine in a country on the other side of the world. But before you, you even really stop to think about the brokenness of this world that, that you live in, the, the sports section has already caught your attention and you're already flipping to another page. You're already moving on, right? As humans, too often we have very, very short attention spans. But, but when it comes to, to particularly heinous sins, like abortion or assisted suicide or sex trafficking or letting men play on women's sports teams or letting boys into girls' restrooms. All right, the, the more of a moral atrocity you realize those things are, the more likely, when you stop and think about them for a while, the more likely you are to become angry by them in a righteous kind of way. And the more righteous anger that you have about those things, the more likely you are to respond to them rather than just to ignore them and just move on. 
So sometimes it's actually a good thing just to take a moment, let the significance of the problems of this world and the brokenness of it and the the weight of it just sink in. Because that brings us to the second step that we see Nehemiah take. All right, after he gets angry, he lets those emotions lead to action. That's step two. Let your emotions lead to action. Verse seven says that Nehemiah took counsel with himself, meaning he mulled everything over. He thought about all of these grievances uh, that were being brought before him. And then we're told that he brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And he said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And then because of that, Nehemiah, we're told, holds a great assembly against them. So he gathers all the people together and then he says to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So so basically what Nehemiah is saying is what good is it for the Jews to finally be free from their bondage to the Persians and to be able to return back to Jerusalem if as soon as they arrive back home, they are forced back into slavery by their own people. That, that makes no sense. And, and so we're told that when the, the nobles and the officials heard these charges from Nehemiah, it says that they were silent. They could not find a word to say. They're speechless. So, so instead, Nehemiah is the one who continues to do the talking, saying, this thing that you are doing, it is not good Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Then if you skip down to verse 11, Nehemiah continues by urging them, return to them, the, the, the people of God, their fellow Jews. Return to them this very day, their fields and their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, the grain, the wine, the oil that you have been exacting from them. To to which the nobles respond by saying, we will restore these and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then Nehemiah called the priests and he made them swear to do as they had promised. And then he also shook out the fold of his garment And he said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did just as they had promised. I wish every disagreement in the church could, could end up just like this where you confront somebody because of what they were doing and they admit that they're wrong and they promise to do better. And then you can just give each other a big old bear hug. You can pat each other on the back and then you can continue doing ministry together. Right? That would make life so much easier if this is the way that it always turned out. 
But of course, things don't always go according to plan. Uh, Outcomes like this that you see in Nehemiah, they're often the exception to the rule rather than the norm. And that's because repentance, it, it is not an easy thing to do. Because genuine, biblical, Christ-honoring repentance is more than just saying you're sorry. It's also actively seeking to do what is right again. These nobles, they don't just have to apologize to the poor and say, hey, we're sorry for taking all of your money. No, they actually have to give their stuff back. And from this point forward, if they're going to loan out any money to their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, they can't charge interest. All right, this repentance is actually going to be pretty costly for these nobles and officials. And maintaining this kind of unity in our church is always costly as well. Whenever there is disunity and you find out that You're the one actually causing the problem. You're the reason for all of the opposition. You're going to have to be willing to apologize and repent. And that's not always easy. Or or when you see others in the church and they are not being cared for, they are being neglected, they are being ignored, you have to be willing to fight for them and to confront those who have been neglecting them. And that's not easy either. If you stick around a church long enough, you'll see that that you'll end up playing both the part of Nehemiah and those nobles at some point. I promise you. But, But in either case, whether you're the one having to confront or you're the one being confronted, that the worst thing that you could do in those moments is nothing. We must learn how to act to to let our emotions lead us to action, which will find a solution and restore the unity of the church. So so let the significance of the problem sink in. Let your emotions lead to action. Those are the first two steps. But there's one last one to keep in mind, which is let the solution start with you. Let the solution start with you. You. If you remember, I said that the main idea of this passage is that the greatest danger that the people of that the people of God face is actually the people of God. Well, don't forget that if you are a follower of Christ, that means that you are a part of the people of God, which means that you are a part of the problem. We are all our own worst enemies, which is why Nehemiah goes out of his way to make absolutely sure that he examines his own life as he's also trying to confront others as well. Uh, We we skipped verse 10 earlier, so let's go back and look at that for just a second. Um, This is where Nehemiah says that I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, but let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, different people have different views on that verse. Some take it to mean that even Nehemiah was charging exuberant interest rates and taking advantage of the poor as well. 
Uh, But just given what we know about his character, I don't think that Nehemiah was actually guilty of that same crime as the Jewish nobles. He obviously was lending out money and grain. He he was a wealthy man, so he had the money and the grain to lend out. Uh, But he wasn't likely to have been charging those kind of interest rates like other people. Honestly, he probably wasn't charging interest at all. But just to be above reproach and to make sure that there are no rumors that could spread about him, uh, he includes himself in this commitment not to charge interest to his fellow brothers. Because that was actually forbidden in the law of Moses anyway. But, But then we also see more about Nehemiah's personal commitment to this solution in the final verses of our passage. Uh, So let me go ahead and read the the rest of this text, uh, starting there in verse 14. Nehemiah says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed as their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also uh, persevered in the work on the wall and I acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for work and moreover, There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who who came to us from the nations that were around us. And now what was prepared at my expense for each day, each day, was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So this is the the first time in this story that we hear that Nehemiah has been appointed as the governor over this region. And this is a big deal to go from just being a cupbearer to the governor. And when he first left Susa, the capital of Persia, to head for Jerusalem, uh, we were given no indication that this was going to happen, that he was going to be given a leadership role like that. If you remember, when he left Artaxerxes, the king asked him how quickly he would be able to get this project done with and how soon he would be back at his job because he had earned the king's respect and he wanted him back. But now in the Lord's providence, this new role will actually allow Nehemiah to live there in Jerusalem along with God's people. And I'm sure Artaxerxes was actually relieved in a way to have such a man that he trusted with his own life to be governor over this region, considering (coughs) Israel's past history uh, of rebellion. (coughs) But now as governor, this also means that Nehemiah had a lot of people that were coming and going from his house every 
day. But we're told that it's 150 <coughs> to be exact. And, and anybody, if you've ever been responsible for hosting a Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner, you know just how expensive and labor-intensive it is to host a large group of people. So feeding 150 people a day, that would not have been an easy task for anyone. All right, Nehemiah even shows us his grocery bill here just to prove it. I mean, every day they have to go out and slaughter a whole ox plus sheep and birds on top of that. All right, and they've got to restock their liquor cabinet with more wine every week and a half. All right, they are going through a lot of wine. And Nehemiah has to foot the bill. He has to pay for it all out of his own pocket. Now, now he didn't have to do that. The Persian law permitted him to tax the people for those expenses. But he already knew the burden that had been placed on these people. He knew that, that adding to that would just be too much because they were already suffering through this famine and they were already sacrificing so much of their time and energy to help him build these walls. And Nehemiah's personal story here at the end of this chapter, it's just such a, a great reminder that, that just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's loving. Or right. Just because you can get away with something doesn't mean you should. All right, Nehemiah could have easily have made the people pay this tax so he didn't have to foot that bill, but he knew that it wasn't the loving thing to do. So he put their interests above his own pocketbook. Now, this story is also a great reminder that in ministry, you should. Never keep count of the cost. I mean, just try to imagine counting up the cost for every meal that, that you have cooked for somebody who was struggling. I just try to uh, imagine counting up the number of hours that you have spent letting someone cry on your shoulder or the amount of time that you've spent on the phone listening to someone just vent about the frustrations of their day. Or maybe actually you shouldn't try to imagine counting up all of that cost. Because when you're just looking at it from a purely financial perspective, you're never going to come out ahead when it comes to ministry. You're always going to pour in more money, more time, more resources than you're going to receive back in compensation or appreciation. So, so don't actually try to, to count up the cost, but realize that from a spiritual standpoint, it is always still worth the cost. All right, there are eternal treasures to be gained from all of those sacrifices. All right, if new souls come to faith in Jesus or if old souls are renewed and strengthened in their faith, well, it doesn't matter what the price tag is. It is still always worth it in the end. So, so, so remember that the solution, it starts with you. That's the last step that we're, we're talking about. If you want others to make sacrifices for the advancement of God's kingdom, 
It starts with you. you. You have to be willing to make those sacrifices first. Don't focus on complaining about what others aren't doing and just focus instead, like Nehemiah did, on living out a sacrificial and godly life to be a model or an example for those around you. So we've seen now from this passage this morning that, that God's people are, are the greatest danger to God's people. I've heard other Christians uh, speak about ministry and church life, and, and they said, you know, church would just be so much greater if it wasn't for the people. You know, if you could just figure out a way to do ministry and, and not have people involved in it, uh, it would be so much easier. But, but if it wasn't for the people, we obviously wouldn't have a church at all. So, so instead, my, my final word of encouragement for you is just to be thankful for the example that we see in Jesus, the, the, the good shepherd who was willing to put up with all of us problematic sheep. For, for 33 years on earth, he put up with all of our stubbornness and our biting and our kicking. And he even went to the cross to offer himself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Also, that if we would just submit our lives to him, we could have eternal life. So, so this week, my prayer is that you would do just that, that you would submit your life to him and that we might live by his example patiently loving the people of God just as he did. Let me pray. Father, I just pray that we would all seek to be a people who live by both Nehemiah's and Jesus's example so that even when the attacks come and they're not from the outside, but rather they're from within our own walls and from within our own pews, I pray that we wouldn't be caught off guard. I pray that we would all just stand ready and waiting for those attacks. And I pray that, that we would just be willing to do whatever it takes to fight for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to fight for the unity of this church. Just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.